Thanks for tuning in to the Beyond Normal podcast, where we highlight minority business owners and founders, and we use this platform to shed light on their entrepreneur journey. Welcome to another episode of the Beyond Normal Podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Kenny Groom. Uh, we got an exciting episode planned for you. Uh, this episode is brought to the audience in partnership with our sponsor, our partner, uh, Lord. I see they're, they're in the crowd. They're ready for this conversation right now with our guests. Uh, so uh, I want to hop right into things. Um, I'm excited to have Matt Conwell. He is the founder of Rare Breed Ventures. Uh, which invests um, in exceptional founders outside of large tech ecosystems earlier than everyone else. Uh, Rare Breed takes a concentrated portfolio approach by writing checks up to $250,000. You guys heard that right, $250,000. Uh, er, early stages of, fa- uh, of, of incredible, uh, exceptional founders in, in, in their business. Um, so I uh, want to pass things over to uh, Matt. Um, and, and, and get this uh, show on the road. How's it going, Matt? How's it going, brother? How you doing? How's your day? I'm doing good. Uh, Matt is a uh, is a busy man, so I'm excited that he was able to spend he's able to spend some time with us today. I uh, got a lot of questions for you, Matt. Okay. Um, so so you ready? You ready to get it? Get you going to take it easy on me though, right? Uh, I'm gonna try to. I'm gonna try to. Uh, right. Actually, this topic of VC, Matt, as you know. People have a lot of questions around it when it comes to underrepresented founder uh, founder group, just groups of uh, individuals. There's a lot of mystique. There's a lot of black box um, around the idea of what uh, venture capital is. Um, so I want to hop right into things with you. Okay. Um, before we get on the VC track, tell the mm-hmm. folks a little bit around your background. Um, you, you've worn that entrepreneur hat, but just give people the, the paint the picture for people prior to you going into uh, starting Rare Breed. Yeah, so um, I'll try to keep, I'll do the short version, right? So we get to you know, all the questions. But so my background is uh, I'm from Baltimore, it's where I am now. Uh, went to Morgan State, studied computer science. From there, became a government contractor, supporting the DOD with the top secret clearance, doing a bunch of cool technical stuff. Um, then 2010, started my first startup, ran that for four and a half years with two of my best friends. Went through two accelerators, one in Baltimore, one in San Francisco, and eventually sold the IP off to a division of a Fortune 100 company. I started another company right after that, raised some angel money. That company failed. Ended up taking the gap year, working at a marketing firm for a year, which was not fun. Um, and then found my way to the investment arm of the state of Maryland, the Maryland Technology Development Corporation. Um, while there, I started what's now known as the Builder Fund, which is the first and only state-backed pre-seed fund for women and minorities in the country, something I'm really proud of. And then last September, I left there to start my own firm, Rare Breed Ventures. So that's the, that's the short version. I appreciate that, Matt. Um, I, keep, I appreciate you uh, keep boiling that down for us so we can get right to uh, some of these, uh, some of these uh, hot topics. But, you know, just staying on the idea of you right now, um, you had one successful business, you had one business that failed. I guess why the um, challenge of VC? Like, what, what, like, why go the VC route right now? What, what, what are you seeing out there where you, you feel like it's a great opportunity for Rare Breed to come in? So, I mean, the first off, like, I, I wanted to be a VC originally because every entrepreneur believes they can be an investor, right? Like, we all have friends like, oh, I'd invest in that company. I could do that. 
you find out it's a lot harder than that. But, you know, that was the mindset. So when um, I got the job working for the investment arm of the state of Maryland, um, I just literally applied from the application online, right? I never really thought I'd actually get the job. And so when I got it, I was like, this is awesome. And then when I started doing the job, like they were paying me to go talk to other startups, go to events, speak on stages, like do all the things I already did for free. <laughs> now I'm getting paid to do them. And on, on top of that, I get to give black people money. I was like, all right, this is dope, man. I'll do this. Um, but the reason why I'm spending the rest of my career working in venture was I can make a whole lot more money being an operator at a firm or at a um, at a company, right? Or going to start a company. Like, I, can make, I can make way more money doing that. But I don't know if I can make as much impact, right? Like the kind of companies I get to support, the companies we back, the, the potential they have in the market, the industries they support, the impact I can make in a one-to-many kind of, uh, industry where I can find these amazing entrepreneurs and watch them all create these amazing companies that are going to then hire, you know, amazing individuals that may not look like who you typically see, you know, getting jobs at these high tech firms. Uh, that matters. And so, you know, for me, that was why I was like, all right, venture is going to be my way to go. Got it. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been following you for some time. Uh, now, Matt, uh, you're heavily involved on social media. You're, you're a great advocate, um, for different founders within the community. You mentioned something there around being in the position you're in right now, um, in terms of that VC route. I, I, I've listened to, um, you know, some of the podcasts, some of the speaking engagements that you've been on, and you speak to the idea of, um, you know, access to a network versus having access to capital. Um, can you speak a little bit on that? Cause I think you just touched on that in terms of, you know, you're able to sign some of those checks, but your involvement in the community, I think, is what sets you apart. Yeah. So, you know, we see this a lot where founders will be like, yo, Mac, you know, I'm tired of all these VCs passing on me. You know, this this other white boy who just got just came out of Stanford doing the same thing, raised five million dollars. And I got more traction to him. But all the VCs I'm talking to say they want more traction from me. Like that seems like a double standard. Kind of. But really what it is, is whenever you see somebody like that raise capital pre-product, pre-revenue or very little, and they raise a bunch of it, nine times out of 10, it has absolutely nothing to do with the business. And it has everything to do with their network. They have access to networks and they know people that have disposable income that are willing to write them checks um, in spite of the stage of their business. But when you distill it all down, if I had to look at their business and your business, I wouldn't invest in either one of y'all because y'all both too early, right? And so if you do not have the same network, you cannot make those comparisons. It's not an apple to apple comparison, right? That was something I had to learn the hard way when I started my first business. I'm like, yo, we're in the same industries. We got customers. We got way better product. How come nobody wants to invest in us? And they're like, well, you don't have enough customers. Well, they don't have enough customers either. Yeah, well, the person who made that investment was their dad's best friend in college. I can't compete with that. Like that, that's, 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 that's a completely different avenue of fundraising, right? And so if you don't have that, then it just comes down to the business. And if it just comes down to the business, well, you got to have a business that's getting customers and growing fast enough so that a VC can see the opportunity, the billion dollar opportunity that's potentially there. But I think a lot of founders don't get to see that because like when you see the TechCrunch article, it's like, you know, this company in New York just raised $2 million, you know, pre-launch in the industry that you're in. You're like, ah, that's, 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 that's that VC trash. 
But you know, in that article, what they don't talk about is that that founder is a three-time founder and they sold their last company to TikTok. And they're, even though they're pre-launched, they already signed up the first six companies and two of their first six companies are like Yelp and Uber Eats. That's a different story. But that's not the story that you're going to get from TechCrunch. That's not the story you're going to read on the blogs and things, right? That's not what you're going to see in the tweet. You're just going to see this company that hasn't launched raise a bunch of money, and now you upset. But in actuality, they raised a bunch of money because of the network or a prior track record. And that's the stuff that we don't talk about. And that's and that's where the Apple-to-Apple Apple comparison gets thrown off. Got it. I appreciate you, uh, you know, speaking of that a little bit. Um, just, you know, I come from corporate America and I can even think just an analogy for me would be when I go on LinkedIn and I see somebody who's, uh, their, their entire LinkedIn page is essentially it just shows like their SVP or their CEO of a company. And then I always ask like, well, how did you get there? And I guess they've got so much that they're like, oh, I'm just not going to put it. I'm just going to put like what I'm doing right now. But it's the really like it's the how it's the story behind it um, that, you know, that that ends up having people, you know, relate to it. And people kind of can see themselves. Right. Yeah. But I can't see myself if I'm just looking at, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and where he's at right now. I got to kind of feel the onion back in and, and it's glamorized in certain ways. Like I use Mark, for example, like even in the movies, like they make movies about him. And that's not really what I want to see. Like, I want to have real conversations uh, with a founder uh, like yourself. So you having that background and then applying it in this space, I think that's huge. If people just need to, uh, they need to see people that look like them, but then you got to have that real converse, honest conversation. And, and I can tell just from, you know, the feedback I see on Twitter, just on social media, the conversations that you're having with people, you're having some great, honest dialogue. I tried to, but you know, not everybody wants to hear the honest dialogue, right? Like I, I found this getting you mad at me. I've had founders cuss me out, man. Look, there, there's a founder I'm, I invested in eventually, and he'll tell you the day we met, I told him that he was too early, and I tried to explain to him what being too early meant. Yo, he cussed me out. He cussed out every VC in the industry. Like he was so mad, but like it didn't bother me because I got it. Because like I've been there. I know what that feels like. Like. When, when when all the BS gets stripped away and you get to see what it really is, and you're like, yo, that's not what everybody keeps talking about on Twitter. Like, you mean to tell me that everything everybody's telling me is just a bunch of BS? Well, yeah, you know, it is. It's a bunch of BS. Like, the actual of how this works is completely different. And, like, that's it's, it's frustrating, right? But he took it to heart, you know. I, I, I tried to give him some advice. 18 months later, he came back to me. He's like, yo, Mac, you told me if I did X, Y, Z, we need to have a talk. He's like, well, I did X, Y, Z. What's up? And I was like, well, I guess you put me in the spot. I guess, I guess I gotta live up to what I said. So here's some money, right? Mm-hmm. And now he's one of the, one of the top performing companies in, in my previous fund from the state of Maryland. I'm proud of that guy. But like, I know many VCs would have had that conversation with him and he'd have got mad and they would have rid him off. And like, I was a terrible founder. He didn't know what he's doing. He's got bad etiquette. Like, no, he was just frustrated. Mm-hmm. And when you frustrate, sometimes you just lash out. That's not the end of the world. But you know, not everybody thinks that way. Got it. Um, shout out AC in the house. I know Elaine um, is chiming in from North Carolina. We got folks chiming in from all over right now. Um, but yeah, shout out NC. Everybody, put it put in the comments. You know where you're where, where you're tuning in from. Love to uh, to see the engagement there as well. And you just touched on something that um, around the uh, kind of demystifying VC and and, and you got to take your lumps and as a founder you're going to fail, but I want to take a step 
back and make it even more simple, you know, simpler for folks, right? So VC is this black box. Um, I actually looked up the Wikipedia definition. I want to, I want to go through the Wikipedia definition of VC and then I want to ask you for your definition because your definition is probably going to be a lot better. I'm assuming. I think it will. So the Wikipedia definition of VC is a form of a uh, private equity financing that is provided by VC firms or funds to startups, early stage and emerging companies that have been deemed to have high growth potential or which have demonstrated high growth in terms of employee revenue scale of operation. Matt, can you tell us what the hell that means? <laughs> it means I'm a glorified financial advisor. Really wealthy people ask me to find early stage companies that have the potential to return capital better than if they put money in the stock market, right? These are companies that aren't publicly traded, that the public's not allowed to invest in yet. And so really wealthy people like, hey, find the best of the companies that you think will become publicly traded one day and will be the best ones and, and make investments in those for me and help me grow my portfolio. That's what venture is, right? Like at the end of the day, you know, a lot of VCs, myself included, we talk about how much we care about founders and want to help founders. And all of that's true. But at the end of the day, what my job is, is I'm investing other people's money. So my actual job is to take their money and put it in the companies that are going to return the money. That is, at the end of the day, my job. <laughs> Everything else is like personal and, you know, support for the founders. Because as I support founders, that means I have a better chance of having companies return capital to my investors. But it's the industry. I'm a glorified financial advisor. That's all it is. Don't put me on a pedestal. Right? I'm investing other people's money to help them make more money by investing in these companies and taking an equity position in those companies. That's what it is. And that sounds a little cold and callous, but I mean. I got to keep it real, Matt. You got to keep it real. I appreciate that. And uh, we actually just had uh, the Lord, um, you know, just chime in. I think from that founder perspective, you know, it's frustrating because as a founder, like we're working, you know, so hard. But like you said, you being a financial, a glorified financial advisor, you're, you're sitting there for your, for your, um, the funds that you're investing and you got to maximize that, um, you know, for the, for the group that you represent. So I, I, I guess, how do you go into a situation like, you know, I appreciate Brooke chiming in there. How do you go into that situation knowing that you've been on the other side of the table, Matt, to, uh, you know, kind of level set and not, like you said, not come off as callous as that definition that you just may have given. I try to just keep it real with them. Right. So like, yeah, it's frustrating as an entrepreneur, but one, nobody owes you anything. Nobody owes you to give you their money, right? This is, this is somebody else's hard-earned money, right? Like, if you saved up 10 grand in your bank account and you're going to give it to somebody, are you just going to give it to somebody because they came to you? Or do you want to give it to them just because they black? Like, that's $10,000 you had to save. Like, I don't know how hard you had to work for it. I don't know what you had to do for that. I don't know what went into that, right? Like, that's your money, right? And so now... When you decide you're going to give that 10 grand that you busted your butt for to somebody else, when you give it to the other person, you one, you know, you might lose it all. Like that's, that is the most likely outcome. And two, you're betting that this person's got a chance to do better than everybody else in their market to return you capital. That's a high bar and hard to do. Number one. Number two, you also got to understand what this game is, right? Most companies are never going to raise capital. And let's break it down, right? On a given quarter, so in a three-month span, I'm going to see on average somewhere between five and 600 companies, maybe more. That's me. If I add in my team all together, we're going to see somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 to 900 companies every three months. 
of that, we're going to invest in zero to four. So even if you're a great company, even if I think you're amazing, have a chance to win, you don't know what other companies I'm seeing during that time, right? Like I might find a company that's doing like, you know, 55,000 monthly recurring revenue. They're growing by like 20% month over month and they're killing it. And then like the next day I might meet a company that's doing something in the, in the NFT market that just went from zero to 25,000 users in less than two weeks and is about to close a deal with Top Shot. And I can only invest in maybe one, right? And then the next day I'm gonna meet another company that's doing um, a makeup brand that's kind of interesting that Estee Lauder is uh, leading their, their seed round. Three amazing companies and I can only invest in one. And here's the crazy part. All three of the companies I just mentioned, that's a, that's a real scenario that we had to go through. <laughs> like, I had to sit there and, like, with my team, like, yo, I want to invest in all three, but we can only pick one, which is the one, right? Like, I'm like, I know, I get it's hard, but, like, I can only make so many investments. And, you know, there's a bunch of other investors out there, but, like, all collectively, we're only going to be able to invest in so many of the companies we see. So, like, it's frustrating. It's hard. And, like, the best answer for all of this stuff Build a strong company that's growing customers. Because, like, as long as your customer base is growing, like, whether I give you money or not, like, it shouldn't matter, right? Like, like you, you don't want to build a company that only makes it because of venture, right? You want to build a company that venture has helps you get to, like, you know, to be the next Oatly, right? Where you can go IPO for $10 billion, right? But you don't want to go to venture with, like, my company doesn't exist if I don't get venture. Well, then that, that's not a good place to be. You want to build a company that's a good company. And if you do that, venture will come running to you at some point. That's deep, Matt. So for for you, you 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 would recommend to um, those who are, who are out there starting their business to kind of um, not forget about VC, right? But focus on you know what's that customer pain point they're solving initially, like you said, and just have all, just put all your time and energy into that um, initially. Um, right, like what are your thoughts around around Look, that? Customer acquisition is what's going to get you paid, either with revenue or funding. Right. If you know how to grow customers and you find customers that love your product, everything else will work itself out. And so for me, the three things I really, really harp on are customer acquisition, experience and retention. If you can find customers, if you can get them to love your product and, they, and you get them to stay and become sticky, well, you got a chance to do something devoid of everything else out there. Right. Um, one thing and, I, and one thing I also tell people, like, don't just harp on the product. And most in most cases, the best product isn't the the best product isn't the product that wins a market. And the best example of that is the i the iPod, right? Like Apple was saved by the iPod. The funny thing is, the iPod is nothing but a crappy MP3 player. The original iPod is the most returned product to Best Buy Geek Squad. I know I used to work there, and people used to come in every day with their broken iPods. But you know what? At Best Buy at the time, there was literally an entire wall full of other MP3 players, and most of them were superior. And every day, people will walk past that entire wall and go get the iPod. Why? Because they figured out what customers cared about. They wanted a better-looking design, and they wanted a better story around the product. And that was enough for them to get the customers to, to kill all those other companies that were making MP3 players at the time. Right? It's not about having the best product. It's about having a good product with having a better customer acquisition experience or retention. Focus on that, everything else will fall into place.
Appreciate that, man. Appreciate that. Dropping that gem right there. You, you, the, the, the audience is hearing it firsthand. So you touched on, uh, obviously you touched on a lot there just in terms of what to focus on. I know in terms of the, uh, in terms of the rare breed, like your website, you know, you know, I do, I, I did some research, uh, very minimal, minimalist site, right? But the focus is on the manifest. Right. And so I actually wanted to uh, have my team pull up the uh, manifest here as well. Um, sorry if that's kind of hurting your eyes, folks. Let me see if I can zoom in a little bit. But I wanted to, Mac, in terms of in terms of this manifest, like walk us through, you know, what the, what this means to you. And I guess the, the founders who are having conversations with you, are there any areas they should focus initially when they're looking at a manifest like this from Red Reed? Well, if we're going to keep it 100, our website, as it constitutes today, isn't for entrepreneurs. It's for potential LPs, people who are going to invest in our fund, right? We're still in the process of raising our fund, and so that's why it's so minimalist is speaking towards those who are interested in putting money in our fund. Um, but the manifest, uh, for me, is really just – it was me sharing the things I had learned in my time as, as an investor, right? Um, and, like, pushing back on all these things you hear in the industry, you know – in, like the point number one, right? Silicon Valley, New York, and Boston are not the only places you're going to find great companies. But there are plenty of VCs out there that you can find that will still, to this day, tell you if you want to invest in, the, in a successful company, they either have to be based in Silicon Valley or have connections to Silicon Valley, right? If you want to invest in a consumer product, the best place to be is New York. If you're going to invest in life sciences, you need to be in Boston, well, that's crazy. I mean, I'm in Baltimore. Johns Hopkins, Johns Hopkins University is right down the street. It's one of the top research firm and research schools in the country for life sciences. So why do I need to go to Boston to find life sciences, right? Like, that doesn't even make sense. But yet, these are the things that people say that then become part of the lexicon. It becomes part of, you know, the proverbial dog in the ecosystem, and then it becomes truth. And that's what I'm trying to fight against, right? Things like that where people like, well, that's the only way it can work. No, it's not. So you like you know, my manifest is just a way of me putting those kind of things out there into the into the universe, I guess. Makes sense, Matt. And you know, I appreciate you breaking it down and focusing on the uh the LPs. Um I want I wanna get to that um <laughs> right after uh, you know, this follow up here I have mm-hmm. for you. And I but I, I wanna say, um, you know, again, I'm a sales guy. I usually go, you know, go on my client side. I, I kind of like to pick their brain and like, you know, dig under the hood a, a little bit, right? And just like understand how they think. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the things that you put in here um, around like products, you know, industries that typically VC doesn't look at. I, I, I'm seeing a lot of the founders, at least within my network, you know, the, the, the founders that we have on the platform, they're really gain, you know, gearing their products towards their specific audience. I think about hair products, uh-huh. um, Latin products, you know, African American products, and when it comes to clothing, um, I'm really excited to see, um, you know, the focus on products. You know, I, I, I call it the FUBU model for us, bias, right? Yeah. And so I think this manifest. That's the reason why I wanted to bring it up is because I think you're kind of. Um, you're really manifesting like some of the things that we're actually currently seeing right now where it's not about, you know, we go into, you know, some of these bigger chains around America. We have an aisle, right? Yeah. You know what I mean, right? We have an yeah. aisle, we have a shelf versus just having a whole, a whole site, right? A whole, a whole, 
you know, quote unquote Amazon that's just for us by us. Right. Um, and that and that's what that's why I brought it up because I'm really excited to see that, uh, a manifest like this. It's almost like you know some of the contracts and things like that that we were seeing around. Um, you know, the political campaign that just finished that we're it seems like we're getting into another one. But yeah. I'm excited to see. For some reason, I'm really excited to see um, when people put pen to paper like this. Um, I don't, I don't know why it's such intriguing to me, and I think the founders out there can actually put, they can pull some things from this when they're going into conversations with individuals like yourself. Well, I, I hope so, right? Like, you know, I know that some of the things I say is contrarian to what other VCs do. You know, like you know, I like I like physical products. A lot of VCs don't. Higher overhead, you know, got to cover inventory. Shipping problems with shipping can kill a company, but it's not a reason not to give those companies a shot. You know, um, I'll shout out a company. We haven't made an investment in this company, but it's a company I'm watching. It's something I really like. It's a company called Rebundle.co. They make plant-based biodegradable braiding hair for women of color, <laughs> right? Like, that's just dope. I don't care what you say, right? And there are going to be some VCs that are going to be like, ah, that sounds like a small market. I don't know. That's okay. If you want to leave money on the table, I don't. Right. And so like things like that are really exciting, but you know, not as many VCs play in those kinds of spaces. Um, you know, and then like, you know, for we do pre seed, but even for pre seed investments, we like to do larger checks. You know, two hundred and fifty thousand is a little, you know, lower a little higher than what you typically see a pre seed. But like I say in my manifesto, you know, when I worked for the state, we used to give people forty and fifty K and that was enough to get them moving and having them do what they need to do. But it wasn't enough to help them get to the next round of funding in 12 to 18 months. But all the companies that leveraged our funding to, to raise more capital, somewhere between 250 and 500, they were able to, to get to follow-up funding in 12 to 18 months. So I said, if I'm going to be making these type of investments, let me make sure I make investments where I give you enough money. Where even if nobody else believes you like I do, you get enough capital to do what you need to do without having to jump through every hoop out there just to scrounge up some scraps here or there so that you can get to a point where now everybody's going to believe what you're saying, right? 250000 that might be enough for you to do what you need to do and execute so that you look up, and now everybody wants to talk to you. So that's what I'm always looking for. Got it. Uh, so we got a couple comments um, that came in. Uh, I want to pull up this this one from Valord as well. Um, Matt, can you tell us a little, your thoughts around warm intros? So we talked about that manifest and just having some of those the conversations that you're having. Like, what are your thoughts around warm intros and how founders should go about um, having those with you? Well, I don't need a warm intro, right? Um, you can cold email me. You can DM me. You can find, find a way to get to me. Now, that does not mean that I'm going to see everything that everybody sends me, right? Like, there's only so many hours in the day. I get a ton of emails, DMs, messages, and all that, right? But, you know... There are several companies I've invested in from folks who just sent me a DM or sent me an email, right? Like, I don't need that. And I think that's better for the industry. But let's keep it 100. The vast majority of this industry works under warm intros, right? Like, the vast majority still gets um, companies sent to them through their network, right? And so, like, that's part of the game you need to play. Like, as an entrepreneur, you know, don't just... Don't just rely on folks like myself or Dell Johnson who say, hey, we don't need warm intros, you know, just come our way. Like, there's only so many of us, right? If you're trying to raise capital, understand, like, this, there's a game to this. And part of that game is growing your network. That's growing network with other entrepreneurs. That's growing your network with other operators or successful individuals. And that's growing your network with, with VCs along the way, 
Like, it's not fun. It's not easy, especially if you look like, you know, somebody like myself. Like, when I started, I didn't have a network. I didn't know who any of these folks were, right? And the way I was able to gain that network in Baltimore, I just went to every event I possibly could. And every person I saw, I gave them my business card, and I set up, like, lunches with, like, everybody who gave me their business card. That's the way I got my my local network. The way I got my more national network was I got accepted into a national accelerator, right? I did the New Me Accelerator in San Francisco back in 2012. I got to meet the who's who of Silicon Valley, right? I got to meet Eric Reese. I got to meet Marlon Nichols when he was still at um, Intel Capital. I got to meet um, Richard Kirby. I got to meet Charles Hudson. I got to meet uh, Ben Horowitz, Mitch Kapoor, like Ken Coleman, right? Like all those folks came through from our accelerator. So like, that's where I got to get my national network. But like without that, you know, I'm just out here, you know, cold emailing people, hitting people up on LinkedIn, all kinds of stuff, you know, a quick tidbit for those out there, like a LinkedIn trick, right? Um, if I want to get to somebody at a company, you know, I'll, I'll go to LinkedIn and I'll search for a company and I'll search for the title of the person I think I want to get to at a company. And then LinkedIn will give you a list of people, right? And then I try to find like six to seven people at that company. And because LinkedIn will give me their first and last name, I can typically guess their email address. Cause the email address is some combination of first name, dot last name at or it's like first initial, last name, at, right? And once I guess one person's email address, I know everybody's email address. Um, that is how I got like all my partnerships for our first company, which is all cold emails, right? Because I didn't have a network. But like, I can't use that as an excuse, right? Like, I mean, I could, but then my company doesn't do anything, right? So like, it's on me. Like, how much How much do I want to put into it? And so, you know. That's that's why equity, Matt. Talking to, talking about that uh that's that uh sweat equity for sure like just putting it in and you I think that's a that's another gem right there just figuring out how to get to some of those stakeholders you know the Lord Brooke chiming in as well Amen to what you're saying there because where there's a will there's a way right um and that tip mm-hmm. on LinkedIn that's that, that that's a that's a slick one I like that man I'm taking that for myself Amen look God find your way like look even for me trying to raise this fund right. I'm raising under 506C so I can publicly solicit. You know, most funds don't do that. Why? Because I didn't have a network of rich people to put money in my fund. I would say probably 80 to 85% of all the folks who put money in my fund are people who met me off of Twitter. Right? Like, like here's the thing. In June, when I started fundraising, I had like 25, 2,600 followers. Today I have 29,000. And as that was growing, I saw VCs were following me. So if I saw you were a VC, you followed me. I would send you a DM and ask you if you were down for a meeting. So from the middle of June to the middle of September, I had over 1,100 meetings. Those 1,100 meetings led to me soft circling the first two million for my fund. That's all. I, like I didn't have any other way to do it, so I just brute forced it. Right? Like I don't think that's the smartest thing in the world to do. I was having like 20 to 25 meetings a day. That ain't the smartest thing in the world to do, right? But like I didn't have, I didn't have anything else. So I just did what I had. Like I, I just had to use what was at my disposal because, again, I I can't use the fact that I don't have a network or people don't know me or people like I can't use any of those things as a crutch because then all it does is at the end of the day I'll be looking at myself and I didn't make it happen. So if I want to make it happen, like go do it, right? Like it's not easy. It's not fun. Everybody around me hates me because I'm always grumpy because I don't sleep anymore. But you know, it's it's it's, it's reaching the goal. It's going for what I'm trying to make happen. Putting in the work. Uh, so we got a couple people that chimed in. Jordan, uh, appreciate that. You know, you're saying that's a good that's a good idea. Uh, but Lord Brooke chiming in. Yeah, buddy. Um, I remember you were working the overtime. 
Oh my gosh. Like you said, 1100 meetings. Um, that gives me anxiety, Max, um, for you. So, uh, I can only imagine what your calendar looks like. Like that's, you don't, you don't even. That is a lot of meetings there, Max. Okay. So, uh, I wanted it to, uh, circle back real quick because you mentioned the LPs. Um, your site right now is focused on the LPs. Um, can you break, Break down what the LP, what their role is, um, and why they're important to what you're trying to build out. Yeah, so LP stands for limited partners. They are the individuals that invest money into our funds for us to invest their money, right? So the money that I invest out of Rare Breed is my limited partner's money, right? So I'm investing other people's money. And uh, limited partner is called limited partner for a reason, right? They have limited um, rights and, and um within the fund itself, right? So they're putting their money in saying, hey, we're giving you the money. It's up to you to invest it. You know, we don't have a role in the investing, but it's still their money, right? So like they do have the the right to evaluate me and come back and say, hey, we think you're doing something wrong. We're not giving you any more money or we want to pull our money out. Like that exists, right? But generally speaking, they're limiting what they can do once they put the money into the fund because they're, they're essentially saying they trust me to make good bets with their money, right? Or make good investments with their money. Don't want to call them bets. And so that's what limited partners are. And that's why it's important, right? Like if I'm going to raise a fund, I'm, I'm raising a fund from limited partners. So just the way entrepreneurs pitch the VCs, I got to go pitch the limited partners. The, but the difference is if you're raising money for your startup, typically you're going to raise for three, maybe six months. I'm going to be raising this fund for like 18 to 24 months. Imagine fundraising for 18 to 24 months. Not the most fun thing in the world to do. But you you did touch on, you know, I'm thinking back to your manifest, because um, I had to go back to it. You did touch on the idea, even for the founders, right? Once they get that $50,000, you know, that initial um, influx of capital, that's like the beginning, right? You mentioned accelerators, you mentioned pitch competitions, you mentioned like it, it almost becomes like a job in itself looking for that money, like where to find it outside of, let me build, you know, a viable business, a viable product. Absolutely. That's why we try to give those larger checks. I don't want you to have to spend all that time going to these pitch competitions, going to these accelerators. Like, you know, that takes up time. That eats up, that eats away from the time you need to spend growing the company, right? Like at the end of the day, growth is the name of this game. If you want to be a VC-backed company, you're going to grow and don't hit me with the, you know, we're going to raise one or two times and we're never going to raise again. Very few companies ever do that. That ain't realistic. If you're going to get into this game, be prepared to be in this game. On average, to get to an exit, you're going to raise $89 million. And that's $89 million over several rounds of funding. Right? Like, just understand. Like, that's, 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 a, that's a whole nother thing. And yeah, 18 to 24 months of fundraising is normal for a black woman at the early stages, but there's some, there's some, there's some other things involved in those numbers too. So like, but to Valora's point, like I get what she's saying. Like, yeah, it's, it's a lot. Like I say, when we raised our first capital, we would say we were raising for two years, but in actuality, we were only really raising for like four months because those first couple, those first couple months or those first like year and a half when we were raising, we weren't ready to be raising. We were out there trying to raise, but we weren't ready for it. That's why we were getting all the no's. It wasn't because people were saying no just to be saying no. It was because we weren't ready for raising capital and we didn't know it. So we're pitching to people not even knowing why we're getting these no's or why people are saying turn this down. Because a lot of VCs aren't going to tell you. 
that's one thing like I like I'll tell you right and like yeah there are entrepreneurs who will who like get mad at me for it but like you don't want to go and keep pitching a bunch of VCs and not understand why they're all saying no right like I, I actually talked to a guy I'll never forget this um, I had a call with this guy showing me his company I'm like yeah you know you're too early he's like yeah I keep hearing that and then I explained to him like why he was too early and what it meant and he's like yo Mac I've had over 50 conversations you're the first person to break down to me why I'm too early. He's like, yeah, it makes sense. He's like, now I know what I need to go do. He's like, I literally just thought everybody was racist. I was like, well, sometimes that's true, but more, more often than not, it's not really the folks of being racist. It's just you haven't done enough, and you don't you don't even know that that's the thing because you don't understand what we're seeing. You don't know the kind of companies we're seeing. You don't know the kind of revenue and the kind of traction we're seeing. You know, when I see a dating app that you know just did twenty three thousand um, users. In three weeks, right? And then you show me your startup, and you you've been you've launched like five months ago, and you got less than five thousand users. Well, you know those are like if I got to compare those two, like it's, it's hard for me to make the argument one way or the other, right? But like you as an entrepreneur, you're not going to know that unless I tell you. And a lot of VCs aren't going to talk to you about this kind of stuff, and that's where a lot of these signals get confused along the way because like founders and Founders are making up in their head what's going on because nobody's trying to tell you. Um, that's the whole right. demystifying this venture thing that I think is really important, just so you can understand what, you, what, the, what the rules of the game are. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you breaking that down, Matt, because uh, I've uh, been a part of a couple of uh, pitch competitions before, and I feel like uh, a lot of the time we were just going through it for the exercise most of the time. Um, but I feel like some of the time it was like almost like like a disconnect from reality. Like some of the numbers we were throwing out there, because obviously they want you to like throw something together in two days. You throw it together and then you get on stage and you pitch it confidently. But it's like, what truly are we pitching? And like you said, if you don't have that, if you don't have somebody there to tell you like, hey, you're, you're putting on the screen these big numbers. Like, how are you going to execute it? You know, your, your big goal. But how are you going to execute that? And when you get to that apples to apples comparison, it's it's huge for somebody like you to to give that line of sight so that they can actually truly benchmark themselves um, versus kind of that pie in the sky, which we all want to know what the North Star is. But you got to kind of break that that North Star goal into smaller manageable chunks. Hey man, man, I love that. It's hard. Like it took me almost three years before I learned any of this stuff, right? I would, like, you know, I'm getting bits and pieces here and then, and then I finally put it all together. I was like, well, why didn't y'all just tell me that from the beginning? It's, it's so much easier. Mm-hmm. I could stop wasting time with all these, you know, crazy meetings. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So uh, next up, um, want to reflect a little bit on reflection for you. You know, you mentioned the, you know, um, started two businesses. One was, you know, profitable. One you were able to, um, you know, sell. The other one failed. So I'm curious, you know, with, with that failing process, I, I always like to, I'm in sales. I spend failing into opportunities, what I can learn to, you know, apply to my next, my next endeavor. So and for you, you know, what's something that you've learned throughout the process of starting your businesses that you wish you could have, you could hop in a time machine, head back, five years ago and give yourself this information so that you could be in a better place um, at this very point? Like, what's that, what, what's that, what's that top item for you? Wish you would have known starting out. Well, the top thing was what I just talked about, like how funding actually works. I wish I could have went on back 
for my first company, explaining to myself how important it was to get customers and figuring that out more than just spending a whole bunch of time building product. But for my second company, one that felt, um, I'd have told myself, spend more time getting to know your teammates. Like that company failed because we moved too fast. Like we raised capital, put a team together and got into an accelerator all in the span of like six weeks. Like it went from being a cool nights of weekend project to like, hey, we're all in. Everybody come move, quit your jobs and we're all moving to West Philadelphia. <laughs> They're going to be part of this program. And um, I just happened to have a teammate who didn't want that. Right. But there was like, I didn't spend enough time with him to get to know that. Like he said all the right things. He said he wanted to do the startup thing. But then when he got down to it, it's like, yo, we living in this one, like four grown men living in a one bedroom loft, living off of like ramen noodles every night. He didn't want to do that. And when he figured out he wanted to do that, you know, he just bounced. And I didn't see him again for two years. <laughs> oh my gosh. All so, right. Yeah. Uh, that is, yeah, but, but that is, uh, ramen is not for everybody. Like you said, <laughs> that lifestyle is not for everybody, but I, I think that's something, um, important. Like you said, like you said, building your team, that's part of it. Like, is that, is that something you look at in your process when you're evaluating the, the, the businesses, like what the team, I don't know if I want to call it culture or just what, like what the, the team dynamic is. Is that something you take into account? Outside of the numbers and the, and the growth that you're seeing, oh, oh yeah, like when when I'm uh, when I got like a group, you know, talking to me or pitching to me, when there's more than one founder there, I watch for for team dynamics. I look to see if founders are talking over each other. I look to see if if founders are bickering with each other or giving um, different information, different metrics, or if I ask a question and two co-founders give different answers. So now I know they're not on the same page. Like one of the easiest ones is to ask them. So, you know, with this money, what do you plan to do first? And instead of asking the CEO, I'll ask somebody else on the team first. And then just watch how the CEO acts. If they start to squirm, if they're getting side eye, or if they have to jump in and correct. Well, now I know the whole team is not on the same page. That's something to watch for, right? Like, like little things like that. Right. The, those, those things matter because one of the top things that tank startups is founder dynamics. Right. I can't tell you how many companies I've invested in where co-founders have broken up. Probably just about every single one. If I'm going to be honest. Right. Like that's like, that's like such a common thing. And whenever it happens, like founders are always freaking like, Oh my God. Isn't it? Like, no, it's okay. Like we've seen it. It's all right. Here's the plan. This is how you work it. But in the moment, like it feels crappy as a founder. Like this, this is a terrible feeling. It's a breakup. <laughs> that's what it is. And we all know breakups can destroy some things. You know, you can lose a lot of things in the breakup. You know, you can lose that favorite shirt of yours, that hoodie you loved, right? <laughs> you, you you might lose that PlayStation went out the went out the window somehow, right? Like like things like that happen, right? So you know, we look for that. I appreciate that that, that breakdown there, Mag. Like you said, it it sounds like you know, like a if there's one chink in the you know one link in the armor, right? And that one link is you know, messed up or it's not in the right place, then, you know, the whole thing, you know, that's a malfunction for the entire piece of armor. So the entire suit of armor. So I, I love that you guys are looking for that as well. Looks like we have somebody chiming in. Uh, Elaine, um, since we're not getting sound information, that's why we give up. We don't like that rejection. That rejection. Uh, thank God we have you, Mac, in this podcast to do uh, what we need to start a business. Appreciate that, Elaine. And, um, 
rejection is hard. Uh, that that is a uh, no joke. That's a that's a skill in and of itself. Would you say, Matt, being able to take that rejection? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen a lot, like a whole lot. I mean, I get rejections all the time right now, right? Like. It's crazy. I'll have people hit me up like, yo, Mac, I found you on Twitter. Love all your content. You're really amazing. Now I want to put money in your fund right now. But keep up the content on Twitter. Like, all right, cool. Right? Like, just got to keep going. Right? Like, it just it doesn't stop. Um, but that's just part of it. Like, and, and also understanding, like, rejection doesn't mean no. It means no right now. Like, it rarely ever means a flat-out no. Like, if I'm a fintech investor and you're doing, like, bioscience, like, that's a flat-out no. Like, we'll never get there, right? But generally speaking, like, no's almost always mean not right now because green talks. Like, if you ever get to the point where your company's doing all the right stuff, like, everybody who said no will come right back around because it's never, it's not personal. They're not saying no because they don't like you. They say no because they don't like something about the business. They don't like something about the strategy. They don't like where you are so far, right? And you just got to use that to keep moving. But I'm, I'm going to be real. Like, get no suck, right? Like, I've had days where, you know, I'm in the middle of this fundraise and I got a no from somebody I thought was going to cross the line and, like, just had to eat it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, that hurts, you know? You might, might take a shot or two that evening, wake up the next day and get back to it, right? Like, you just can't dwell on it. But it's part of the mentality. process. Yeah, that's part of the process. Jermaine, appreciate Jermaine uh, chiming in. Rejection is motivation. Uh, we got Jordan chiming in as well. As well. No right now. Uh, I like that a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking that as well. Uh, Mac is giving us that right mindset to have right now. So, Matt, you, you, you continuously drop gems the entire interview. Uh, this is the segment uh, our, our uh, sponsor, Brooke. Um, in our first kind of get together, we were talking about, you know, what we wanted this season to be. And she brought up this idea of world domination. What does world domination look like you, um, and rare breed in 2021? World domination in 2021 is me closing this fund and making some dope investment, right? But world domination in general is me building the next NEA, the next Andreessen, the next Sequoia, the next first round. We're going to build a large multi-stage venture fund based out of Baltimore, Maryland. That's world domination for me. And we're going to make investments all across the globe, right? We're going to help find the next flutter waves, right? We're going to help find the next big thing in Asia, in India, in, in, in the UK, in Canada, in Latin America. Like, we're going to find the best companies everywhere. And we're going to have one of those funds that's generating returns where, you know, Everybody's gonna look up and be like, "Well, Rare Breed really did it, right?" That's that's where it's gonna be. That's 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 what I'm going for. I like that. Uh, Valor chiming in. Hell yeah, we love to hear that, uh, Matt. Uh, that world domination, like you said, the DMV needs to be a, a, a VC hub. Uh, that sounds that sounds amazing. In terms of the fund that you're raising, what's the what's the what's the goal? What's the um... Yeah, so we're raising ten million dollars. Uh, we've we've gotten a little more than thirty percent of that already committed. Um, the minimum check size right now is twenty k. So anybody interested, go to rarebreed.vc, click the button, become an LP. Uh, you know, twenty k. You can split that over two over two years. So so ten k a year for two years. Oh wow! That's how we make it work. Okay. 
So you're making it, yeah, you're making it. People ain't gotta have it up front. That is a, you know, that is, that could be a large sum for some for for some folks. So I, I definitely appreciate you being able to break that up and and, and have people. Uh, with some skin in the game when it comes to these investment funds, because I know on the back end, the returns, like you said, you're going to be aiming for those incredible returns uh, for your investors there as well. So in terms of, you know, cl- you know, closing that, um, I want to, you know, ap- I appreciate you so much for, for hopping on and giving us that VC one-on-one is what I like to call it. Um, but you, you, you're in, in a unique situation where you've been a founder a couple times, you've had some success, You've had some failures, and now you're looking to take those into this new opportunity with uh, Rare Breed. But let folks know how they can reach out, um, get connected, um, you know, with you and, and along with Rare Breed in, in terms of their needs for their business and maybe um, eventually becoming an LP. Yeah, so if you want to become an LP, just go to our website, rarebreed.vc. There's a button you can click to become an LP. Uh, the best way to get to me is on Twitter, at Matt Conwell, M-A-C-C-O-N-W-E-L-L. I'm pretty active, you know, tweet at me, you know, holler at me, DM me, you know, maybe we'll be able to catch up one day soon. Yes. And Mac, uh, he, he's probably not going to uh, elaborate on himself, but uh, uh, Brooke chiming in, thanks, Mac. Uh, Mac is his so- on social media. Your social media is popping on Twitter. I guess that's what the kids are saying right now, Mac. Uh, but you're one of the people I follow. Your network is incredible. So just following Mac, I feel like it, it opens you up to this world where you're getting you're getting stuff on your feed where you're feeding your brain, you're you're you're, you're feeding your mental in terms of how to get your business right. The LPs, uh, Zarin actually just chimed in as well. Um, thanks, Mac. Yeah, again, appreciate all all the info, Mac. But yeah, follow Mac on uh, social media. He's one of my go tos. I got a, a few folks I just go to when I just want to know. What the nitty gritty is, Mac is one of those people uh, there. So make sure you follow Mac and, and chime in on rarebreed.vc uh, for for all your needs and, and, and just to, to learn more about about that space. We got a lot of opportunity, I think, for underrepresented groups um, to get some funding from that space and, and then again become players like Mac in that in that space. That's going to be huge uh, moving forward. Uh, but again, I want to thank you, Mac, uh, for for uh, you know coming on, being a guest. Uh, shout out to all the folks who uh, chimed in and gave, gave feedback there as well. And uh, in closing, thanks for tuning in to the Beyond Normal podcast, everybody. Have a good weekend. Have a good one, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Beyond Normal podcast. We can be streamed across all major streaming platforms in addition to YouTube. Come back again. Wow.